So Philippians 3, 1 through, I'm sorry, 1 through 9. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence to the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to seal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, an opportunity to come to open your scriptures, to be taught by you uh, through your scriptures. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would shine a light on this passage your Holy Spirit would shine a light on our hearts, that he would mediate between your will and our hearts, uh, that he would teach us, show us, and press upon us the things that we should take from your word, God, that, that we would know you more truly uh, because of the things uh, that we uh, discover together here in this passage today. God, we thank you for um, for church, we thank you for the blessings of fellowship. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who we can uh, live in community with, who we can share uh, our joys and sorrows with, um, who we can grow together with and serve and minister. Father, let us always recognize the fact that, that we need each other, that we are members of the same body, that Christ is our head. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're just going to jump right into, again, a beautiful passage. Um, one of my favorites, which I say pretty much every other week, but man, what an incredible, um, uh, beautiful passage about the idea of the the value, the worth of knowing Christ. So Paul starts out this passage, and we're just going to jump right in. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Okay. The last thing I'm going to say to you as I close out this letter, uh, Church of Philippi, is rejoice in the Lord. I've encouraged you to unity. I've encouraged you to sacrifice. I've encouraged you to humility. The last thing I want to say to you is, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
exalt Jesus Christ, contemplate his glory, announce his mercies and his goodness, celebrate the salvation that we have. That's what I want you to do. I want you to rejoice in the Lord, to be happy in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. I love the way he says this next. It's such a funny little line of, and just so personal, right? He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you, okay? You know why he says that? Because I'm sure the Philippian church has heard Paul say over and over again, rejoice in the Lord. That's what it's all about, guys. You should be rejoicing in the Lord. And he said, it doesn't bother me at all, but keep on saying it to you. Because it's fine that I would say it, and it's good for you to hear over and over again. I wonder if the early church was as likely to take for granted those kind of things as we are. If they were as likely, no, it's all new to them. This letter is probably being written in the early 60s. Jesus is crucified and resurrected just 30 years ago. The church is so new and everything. You would think that they would hold on to it better than we would maybe. But I got to feel like they did I got a feeling like believers very quickly were weighed down by the cares of the world and had all the same issues that we do. And so Paul is reminding them, hey, you know what? Rejoice the Lord. Never stop. This is, this is me now saying to you, never stop repeating true things like that. Okay? Never feel like you're in a situation where you go, you know, I've, I've told my friends, I've told my family, I've told my children, I've, I've, I've told my small group to rejoice in the Lord. They've heard me say that before. Uh, so I'm not going to get into it again. I'm just going to let it lie because I've said that before. No, repeat true things over and over again. Say it over and over again. Tell everybody. Paul says, it's not a problem for you to say it again. I told you before, rejoice the Lord. I'm going to tell you again. Rejoice the Lord. It's not only easy for me to say it, it's good for you. But you need to hear it. You need to be reminded of these things over and over. We care about theology. We care about apologetics. We care about justice. We care about ministry. But man, if we forget to rejoice in the Lord, then all of those things are going to lay flat. Jesus isn't the center. He's not a solitary center, right? He's not the only thing in the center of our lives. Then we'll end up, if nothing will make any difference. It'll all be forfeited. The whole faith will be forfeited. And that's what Jesus, I mean, that's what Paul is getting into in this passage. The centrality of Jesus Christ. We are particularly talking about Christ's centrality, okay, and especially his centrality concerning righteousness. Obviously, Jesus is at the center of everything, the whole universe for all history and all of time, but particularly, Jesus is at the center of our righteousness. And when we talk about righteousness, we kind of throw that term around a lot of times, but what are we talking about? It is your rightness, right? It is your rightness with the Lord. It is that you are aligned with God. That's what we talk about when we talk about righteousness, or are we righteous before God? Every other religion, every other worldview on the planet, all of them, all of them, say in some way that ultimately the way we find our righteousness is within ourselves. By us acting a certain way in our identity, in our obedience, in our own works, Every single worldview, every single religion says that in some way. But the gospel reveals a righteousness that is found outside of ourselves. A rightness that doesn't come from us living up to something. But as some theologians have dubbed it, it's an alien righteousness. 
It is a righteousness that sits apart from us and comes to us from another place. A righteousness found in another person. The crazy idea that you can be righteous because somebody else is righteous. A righteousness given to us, again, imputed, inputted into us. And that's a righteousness that is found in Christ. So let's look at how he elaborates on that idea. Because he's basically just going to pour into that. He's going to say, our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the center of our righteousness. And, and what are all the ways that that plays out? And he elaborates on that idea. So first off, right? There are always forces that want you to believe something else in terms of those things. There are always going to be forces in the world that are trying to convince you that your righteousness ultimately lies in you. In fact, they will even try to co-opt Jesus sometimes. Not deny Jesus, but try to add Jesus to their philosophy or agenda. To use Jesus as an accessory to their own worldview as justification for its legitimacy. And basically to say, you know, if we can show you how Jesus agrees with us, then you'll have to believe in the things that we say. But what is Paul's warning? This is who he's talking to. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about these people who are trying to co-opt Jesus Christ. You know, I'm always amused. The way the world, like when you when you watch YouTube and you listen to social commentators and stuff like that, I'm always amused at the fact that people who are not Christians, people who do not believe in the messianic identity of Jesus, they do not believe in the authority of Scripture, they do not care about any of those things, and yet they are also desperate to make you see why those things align with what they think. Right? So you'll see somebody in their life, well, I believe in this weird belief about whatever, and let me show you why Jesus would affirm that and why the scriptures say that that's okay. But if you were to ask them on side, when you think about Jesus in the scripture, they'd say, oh, I don't believe any of that stuff, right? Okay? It, it's a good picture of it. The world is always trying to co-opt Jesus, right? And say, here's my worldview, and if, and if you'll get on board, Jesus, if you'll get the scriptures on board, then, then that'll work out. But Paul calls these people for what they are. They're dogs. They're evildoers. And in one particular situation... They are mutilators of the flesh. Now, the, those 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 different names, dogs and evildoers, those are a little more broad, but we know exactly who the mutilators of the flesh are. That was a group of people in the early church that we refer to as the Judaizers. So the Judaizers were those people who believed in Jesus from a Jewish background usually, but they also believed that it was necessary, in fact, essential to also keep the customs and ceremonial laws of Old Testament Judaism, right? So people are coming to know Jesus Christ. The Spirit is making them alive in Christ. They're confessing sin. They're repenting and believing on Christ for salvation. And then the Judaizers are coming along and saying, yeah, 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 but now you got to do all the stuff, okay? you got to do all the stuff that, that the Old Testament law has commanded you to. So obviously that would include things like dietary restrictions. You see a story in the scriptures where Peter has gotten himself into a predicament because he's around the Judaizers. He acts one way and he's around the Gentile believers. He's, he's acts another way. That would include ceremonial purity. 
and the ways, the different ways that uh, affects things. And particularly in our context, it includes the right of circumcision. Those are the people who are mutilating the flesh. So those who believe that to be right with God, even someone who has trusted in Jesus must still follow through with the Jewish ceremonial rite of circumcision. So now, at this point, it's kind of funny, in the, in the passage, you might expect Jesus, I mean, you might expect Paul to say something like, no, circumcision is not necessary anymore, right? We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to follow that physical, symbolic rite to be right with God. But it's interesting, it's not exactly the tact he takes. What's verse 3 say? He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, what? What's he talking about? We are the circumcision. Okay, well, circumcision had a particular symbolic meaning. It was obviously a ceremonial rite that depicted the covenant Israel had with God, but it was a it was a picture of the removal of sin. All right, the removal of something from deep within us, sensitive, personal, and yet God was saying symbolically, this must be excised. It must be taken out and removed from. Sin has to be dealt with. Okay, you cannot continue to live as you did. If you are going to be in covenant with me, those things are going to have to be cut off and removed from you. That's the picture, right? But here's the deal. Even in the Old Testament, they recognized that that physical circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality. That it was pointing towards a picture of a life that was repentant of sin and dedicated to God, okay? So when Paul says, we... The church, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone are the circumcision. Paul is saying the Judaizers act like they are the more spiritual ones, the more faithful ones, because not only are they believing in Jesus, but then they're taking this next step and, and actually participating in circumcision. That they are achieving righteousness by still requiring physical circumcision for, for commerce, right? But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, no, in fact, symbolically, we are the truly circumcised ones. We are the people who have actually excised sin. We are the ones who are actually doing what it means to repent and be marked by a new life. And that is a life that finds its righteousness in God, in Christ, by faith alone. That's what it really looks like. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, there's only one way to accomplish what you say you are accomplishing. You want to be really pure. You want to be really free from sin. It can't be Jesus plus something. The people who have actually been circumcised in their hearts are the people who have trusted in Christ alone for these things. Those people who he says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Because the only way that we can accomplish that is by faith. Placing trust in Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh, and that is not putting confidence in the things of the flesh, in accomplishing anything concerning our salvation by doing something in, in the flesh. We put confidence in the flesh in all kinds of different ways. 
right? We we all do. And Paul's going to give us a pretty good list of ways that people put confidence in the flesh. Look at verse 4. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence, the flesh also. So he's like, you guys talk about how you have confidence in the flesh because you have gone through with this, this ceremonial rite of circumcision. He said, hey, but I have reasons to be confident in the flesh too. In fact, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's what Paul says. So he says, whatever advantage, whatever Jesus plus something you think you have, or Judaizers, Judaizers you think you have, Paul says, I got you beat. I might have better. I've done all those things. Okay? Whatever add-ons you think have made you super spiritual and, and, and truly right with God, Paul says, I've already done all those things. And I've done more than you. In fact, let me list them for you, is basically what Paul said. Let me give you my spiritual resume of all the things that I have, I could count as works of the flesh, if that's what it took to actually be right before God. And notice Paul's, as we go through them, Paul's, they're Paul's resume, but they become many of the things that we all try to find our righteousness and tack on to Jesus at the same time. Too. So what does he say first, verse 5? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You talk about circumcision. I was circumcised on the, uh, on the fifth, eighth day. Check, right? God, I did that. I'm in the same club as you guys. For us, circumcision doesn't carry the same kind of religious meaning that it did in, in that culture. But we can immediately shift and think about other ceremonial rites that we might try to tack on and say, this thing saves me in some way. Maybe baptism, maybe communion, maybe confirmation in certain traditions, membership in a particular church, even church attendance. We, we talked in a small group over at Tim's house today about this almost idea of you're sort of working your way up a spiritual leadership ladder, right? You start out of this position, you move to this, and you're trying to ascend to something. Do you count those things as things that make you more right with God than the person sitting next to you, right? I'm better off. I'm closer to God. I'm more right with him because I've done these things. I've got Jesus, but then I've also checked these boxes. A ceremonial ascendancy of attaining righteousness. Other things he says. We'll put all three of these together even though we can kind of parse them out. He says, I was a people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. You're talking about Judaizers. You think you guys are better off because you're actually God's people. Man, I, I got more Jew street cred than any of you do, right? I'm the most Jew, okay? Uh, right racially, right ethnically, right tribally, right nationally. Like, I'm, I've got all the, you know, you fill out your little identification boxes on your driver's license application or whatever, and he's like, Jew, 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 Jew. Like, i got all of those, okay? The Jews were God's people, right? Everybody else is on the outside. And Paul says, I'm the most Jew out of everybody. Everybody else is the goyim, the Bible says. They're the Gentiles. You know, Gentiles means probably, probably, it means the nations. It was like the Jews couldn't even be bothered to delineate people. They were like, there's us, and then there's everybody else. 
Christians have, at different points of history, also made righteousness about racial or cultural categories. Seeing people who are different from you racially or nationally or ethnically is somehow less significant, even less spiritual, less capable of connection with God because of those things. And we don't even have to go that central to, to who we are. We can talk about other things like denomination. We can talk about tribe. We can talk about subculture, right, within these things, where we look at the denomination across the road and we sort of say, well, you know, the other denomination over there does think, well, you know, I mean, that's just how they are, right? And we do those kind of things as if Jesus plus Southern Baptist makes us good, right? Um, Jesus plus one of the other things, probably not as good. Paul says, whatever clique or subculture you're talking about, I was in the goods. Okay, I was in all the right things. I could click all those boxes. As to law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. So the Pharisees were a particular theological tradition. They were, in, in for lack of a better way of describing it, they were the theological conservatives of, of Judaism. Right. So this is another thing that we tack on sometimes to Jesus. Well, I got Jesus, but I also think theologically. I'm in the right theological camp. Okay? You know, I'm a, I'm reformed, not one of those Arminians. Uh, I'm a, a premillennial. I'm not one of those postmillennials. I'm in a certain category, right? And because of those things, I am more in favor with God. I'm more right with God because of those things. Right understanding. Right theological belief. Okay? Is it wrong to have right theological belief? Of course not. We want to be as right. We want to be as biblical as we can be. But if you think your right theological belief trumps Jesus in some way, and that you are more righteous than someone who disagrees with you on those things, who also has Jesus, we're missing something. Verse 6, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, So in any case, Paul was, he was a hardcore chief, all right? He was hardcore about it. He was going after those Christians. He was going after to stamp out this new heretical set. The Jewish faith had to take action, right, to get rid of these people who were corrupting the, 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 the worship of God. I mean, he was all about it. He was, he was in it. He was one of the leaders of that movement. So we talk about this idea, man, right action. Are you are you excited about something? Are you sold out? You have the right causes, faithful service in those things. Are you pro-life enough? Because if you're not right, you may not be as righteous as I Are you anti-racist enough in another camp? Well, if you're not, I don't know if you're really a follower of Jesus the way I am. Right? You're not as you're not as righteous as I am. Someone's too conservative in one camp. Someone's too progressive in another camp. Let's face it. Over the last few years, most, many Christians have segregated themselves into communities based almost solely on political affiliation. Like, we haven't done this yet in terms of, like, naming names but all you got to do is drive around Bluff County, and I could go Republican Church, 
Democrat church, Republican church, moderate Republican church, a hard Democrat church, a hard Republican. That's what we do. I can easily do that. If you're right, I will make this, right? But we could. I could just go through and say this one, this one, this one, this one. Almost where people will even segregate themselves. That's the first thing they want to know, right? Well, what kind of church is that? A hard R Republican church? I want to know that because that's what I'm looking for. COVID. Me too. Black Lives Matter. 2020 election, Roe vs. Wade, January 6th. Do you have the right opinions on those things? Because if you don't, you're not as righteous as I am. Right? I get it. You have Jesus. Cool. But do you agree with him on those things? Because if you don't, something's wrong. So in this book I'm reading, some of you guys have been looking at my posts that I'm doing on, on the Facebook page about this book about the de-churching of America that I've been reading. Here's a cool thing. I've not actually presented the next group, but here's two, here's two interesting things. Statistically, there is a big group of white women who have left churches because they are too Republican and too conservative. Okay? Statistically, we have discovered over the last 20 years, there's a big group of white women who have left churches because those churches were too Republican and too conservative. But you know what's fascinating? Something that I did not expect when I read the book in a chapter that I have not given you statistics for. There is a significant group of black males who have left their churches. Why? Because those two churches are too progressive and too democratic. A significant group. Okay? And I go... People who basically say, I can't be in community here anymore because these people are demanding of me things politically that I can't ascribe to. One last thing he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a big claim. Right? But he says, when it comes to the law, when it comes to morally following what God has commanded us, his moral standings, legalistic standards, he says, I'm blameless. I did everything I was supposed to. You think you've obeyed the law better than me? I did everything. I've never done any of those bad things that other people do. Right? And you can put you can play map lists, and you can put whatever category you want in there. You know, name of sexual sin, uh, name of uh, substance abuse, name whatever. You can put whatever you want to in it. That's the kind of things we're talking about. Which bad things? You take your pick. But the key is, Paul says, that I've never done it. I've never done any of those things. I was straight arrow all the way. You know what? For a lot of people, that makes them more righteous. Than Their righteousness is found in those things. So in their eyes, they are more right with God because they have done have never done those things. So it's a good question to ask ourselves. What do you add to Jesus? It's a good question. Maybe even what do you substitute for Jesus? 
What are the things that you think are necessary in addition to Jesus to make you righteous? You ever thought about that? Ask yourself those questions. Here's, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. They're sneaky. They are sneaky things. They hide underneath the surface. Oftentimes they are uh, very connected to our prejudices and to our biases. Again, not all those things are bad, right? We're not saying that there aren't things that are more or less biblical views of things. There are, there are things that we can look to the Bible and say, yeah, the Bible teaches this and this group over here is not living by it. But that's not what we're saying. We're not talking about um, are we being more or less biblical in these things. We're talking about our righteousness. Where is that righteousness found? Look how strongly Paul goes into this. Verse 7. How strongly he said it. He said, whatever gain I have. He says, I checked all these boxes. You want to have a being Jewish contest, I'm going to beat you every time. Okay. But then he said, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain those things gave, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. So even if my resume, my fleshly box checking was a gain, right? Even if we counted those things as goods, if I was right about those things, he says, compared to knowing Christ, I've shifted them all into the negative category. On the ledger sheet of my righteousness, Paul says, even if I at one time considered those things to be all in the black, as soon as I knew Christ, I shifted them all into the red. They're all detriments, in a sense, then. Even if by themselves they added, you could say, pennies to my righteousness account, he says, as soon as I got the billions that were in Jesus Christ, they seemed to be nothing. They were insignificant now. Verse 8, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not just these things, but anything. That someone might strive worth to or use as a measure of their own self-sustained righteousness. Anything, right? Wealth, status, fame, achievement, influence, legacy, pedigree. Anything you want to say that would be something you would tack on and say, well, I got Jesus and I got this. Paul says, I count it all as loss. It's all loss. Amen. It's even heavier Again, ask the question, what makes somebody, somebody in the kingdom of God? What makes you somebody to God? What makes you right with God and under his good favor? Paul says, I count all those things as nothing next to knowing Christ. Again, it's not that they're good or not important. It's not that there are situations good, better, best, more biblical, less biblical. That's not what we're talking about. Compared to knowing Jesus, they are nothing. Knowing Jesus is everything. Do so you remember the story of the thief on the cross? A few months back? No spiritual rest. No right theology. Haven't lived a good life. Nothing to commend him to God. 
All he has is, I'm a sinner, and the man on the middle cross is a savior. And what does Jesus say to him? That you'll be with me in paradise. Because that man was right with God because he trusted in Christ alone for these things. And I love it, man. The language, because Paul gets a little salty every now and then. He just gets salty. It's really good. He gets even more extreme. He says, for his sake, Jesus sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I give up all those things, right? Paul had a nice thing going as a Pharisee and a really good deal set up. He was a persecutor of the church. He had the right pedigree with his teachers that he had been raised up in, right contacts. He was in a position that gave him notoriety. He was a mover. He was a shaker. He was an up-and-comer, right? That's who Paul was. And he walked away from all of it. Because Jesus is the treasure in the field. Jesus is the, the thing that is worth giving up everything for. And just have it here. You sell all you own and buy that field so you can have that treasure. That's who Jesus is. Paul recognizes that. And not only does he say he gave it up in exchange for Christ, but he basically counts those things as a Greek word, scubalon. All of those things were scubalon. It's a fun word. You say it, scubalon. But don't say it quite no. Because it's not really a nice word. <laughs> Scubalon means refuse or garbage. At least it can. But more generally, it has another meaning that is never recorded usually when they translate it to the Bible because it just doesn't seem right to put that word in the Bible. Literally, it means animal excrement. It means dung. It means poop. It means things fit for the heat. The manure pot. Right? So when placed alongside knowing Christ, everything in his life becomes extra. We talk about the idea of people say, well, I've sacrificed a lot to follow Christ. In the final accounting, you have sacrificed nothing to follow Christ. You have traded the dog crap of your accolades for the inestimable value of Jesus Christ, for the unsurpassable glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Say, Ash, you're not supposed to say crap from the pulpit. And my retort is, I didn't Paul. <laughs> and so in this passage, brings these two strands together. Strand of the value of Christ and the strand of what makes us right with God. And the answer is there is one source and there is one path, there is one way, there is one means. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus is our righteousness. 
What you have done is not your righteousness. What you have not done is not your righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. So our righteousness comes as a gift of grace from God. It's not a philosophy. It's not a lifestyle. It's not an obedience. Righteousness with God is a person. That person is Christ. And if it's a person, then the way you connect, the way you receive, is not by doing something, but by knowing somebody. By trusting in him and loving him and having faith in him. And certainly that will lead to all kinds of things in your life. Those things it leads to will never be your righteousness. Your righteousness will always be Jesus. Amen? To the Lord prayer. Father God, your grace and your mercy to us are incredible. Father, the fact that that you have provided everything that we need to be made right with you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he is our righteousness. God, that he is right with you that if we are found in him, then we are right with you. God, we do not um, we do not decry all of these other things that we talk about. We, we, we want to be obedient, God, in response to your salvation. We want to be faithful. God, we want to put you first in everything in our lives to live in a way that honors you. But God, never let us save those responses for what has made us righteous. That Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection, that he is our righteousness. God, as we engage with the world around us, let us not call people to a righteousness that is about following a certain creed or living a certain lifestyle, but let us call people to Jesus Christ. Now, we trust that in the power of your spirit, that those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, God, that you will be working in them and you will sort out their sanctification, their obedience, and, and all those things. But God, let us preach the pure gospel that says Jesus Christ is the only way and the only righteousness. It helps us to believe that ourselves. When we, when we shift in our own thinking, when we doubt um, your love and care for us, it helps us to look to Jesus. Help us to look to uh, who he is and what he has done and know that because of him, we are right. Father, we love you. 
We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see you. Glad you're here tonight. 
uh, let me remind you, encourage you one thing that you be in prayer for over this coming week. So, Erin, uh, if she does not have a baby before Friday, they are going to do so. So, she is going to have a baby before we meet again uh, next Lord's Day. And so, just that you be in prayer for her, we'll kind of keep you updated on that. If, if she heads to the hospital earlier in the week, we'll kind of let you know and, and what's kind of going on. Just be in prayer for her. Um, you know, everything looks good. There's, there's no worries there or anything like that. Just always um, ask God's favor on, on all that. Uh, as a result, over the coming weeks, Erin's um, already kind of said to me, we'll see what happens. But she said, man, I'm not the kind that, like, you know, stays locked up in my house for, like, eight, ten weeks after I have a baby. Like, I'm, I'm going to be out pretty soon and as long as everything goes well. She's like, that's what I do with my other kids. So it probably won't be very long before she's back. But in the meantime, we're going to have a um, some, some spots to fill over next door with the child care set. And so we can get um, be willing to kind of come along and, and, and plug in and help out wherever we can. That would be awesome over the next um, few weeks. So uh, hope you have a great week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. Thank <laughs> you.